0: And then, yeah, that weekend, uh, it was absolutely extraordinary, the attention that it uh, garnered I suppose, and, and the discussion and conversation that it created, overwhelmingly positive response. And it was pretty bloody exciting. And I mean, I'm, you know, I think I've still come to terms with what we've done. I, didn't, I certainly didn't think it was uh, recognized that it was as big a deal as, it, as it's become uh, in the grand scheme of things.
1: G'day and welcome to episode 46 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalieve, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Stuart Austin of Wilmot Cattle Company. This episode has a lot of golden nuggets of wisdom. Stuart talks about finding his feet in his early 20s, the importance of mentoring, and the challenges he faced setting up a business to attract young people to work on farms in Canada. Stuart talks about the role of mentors in his life and through his journey as an aspiring manager and then more so in business today. Stuart shares a bit about a course he did with RCS, which you may remember is Terry McCosker from a few episodes ago. That gave him the opportunity to share information and have advisors from multiple farming businesses right across Australia. Stuart's driven by two goals. The first being that he wants to help people and the second is that he wants to make people laugh. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It was fascinating to understand more about Stuart and his story. I'd love to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more at www.lawd.com.au. Stuart Austin is currently the general manager of Ormond Cattle Company, where he's been for the last four and a half years. Stuart describes himself as being passionate about the beef industry and food production presently managing a growing natural grass-fed beef operation in northern New South Wales. Stuart believes in farming within what you can control within the business. And for his business, that's grass, money and livestock. Stuart, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast.
0: Thanks, Holly. Uh, You summed that up pretty well. Thank you. Uh, Great to be able to join you and have a chat.
1: I'd I'd love to know, yeah, just a little bit, I suppose, about your background, Stuart, and... um, your current role with Wilmot Cattle Company.
0: Yep. So the, uh, the short version, um, of, uh, long story I suppose was growing up in, uh, just outside Albury, um, in Southern New South Wales, on a little block down there and used to spend a lot of time with my grandfather, um, way in the upper Murray and blame him for being in the, me being in the beef industry. Uh, I uh, spent a few years up north after school um, then I went to Canada for a few years and worked in actually Broadacre cropping over there and uh, started a recruitment business, sending young Aussies over there to work on farms and bring Canadian guys out here. Um, and I came home and did a bit of study down at Marcus Aldham and then back up north for a few years uh, and then we just started to think about leaving the territory and... This job was advertised um, just as the manager of Wilmot itself. Um, And so in 2016, September 2016, we moved down here and haven't really looked back. Um, So we started out, I started out here as the manager of just Wilmot, as I said. uh, And then, I suppose nearly two years ago, uh, my role developed into a general manager role of all three farms when we purchased another farm down at um, Canada called Morocco.
1: Yeah. Lovely. I, um, I want to jump in just to your Canada piece. Cause I, I went and worked in Canada in 2015. Whereabouts in the beautiful country. were Uh, I
0: spent most of my time in Alberta. So I was a, a, a guide on a dude ranch for the first um, couple of summers I was there, which was actually a really enjoyable job. I met people from all over the world. It's probably one of the easiest jobs I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, met some great people. And then, uh, yeah I landed a job on a um seed growing operation out in uh northeastern Alberta at wainwright um so I worked for a guy out there who was a very good conventional farmer uh you know grew pedigree seed um sold a high value product was was a really sick farmer um so i was actually i was very fortunate to learn a lot of operational things there um and you know gained a few extra skills that were when I came home from time to time.
1: Yeah, polar opposite though from working up in the northern beef industry.
0: Yeah, certainly was. Um, and, I you know, like I said, it was a fairly short version of what's been a long story. Um, but I have, you know, worked in quite a few different parts of Australia and, and obviously in Canada and done quite a few different things. And I think, um, you know, one might look at my resume and think I've been a bit here, there, and everywhere. Uh, but the flip side of that has been a... You know, quite a broad range of skills and exposure and, and knowledge um, that I've picked up along the way, and I think that you know, every day I use something that I've learned from somewhere, that's, you know, somewhere different um, in, in my job today. So uh, I think it's, you know, I've, for any young people, I, um, there is a balance between, you know, jumping jobs every six months, but uh, and and picking up new skills and a whole range of skills. But I think it's certainly worth um, keeping your eyes wide open and and exploring different things from time to time and, and, you know, having a broad range of skills in your toolbox that you can apply anywhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know, I suppose from my perspective too, whether it's been in Australia working for different operations or or particularly going over into Canada, and when you start to look at and be involved in businesses in different cultures, although Canada, I suppose, isn't hugely different to Australia, there are, differences and, sim- and I suppose similarities as well but it's those differences particularly around people that, that I think are the, are the real skills which start to create and develop you as a person
0: yeah exactly right um, they are a very similar culture to us in Canada it was probably one of the reasons I stayed there as long as I did because I just really enjoyed the people over there um, you know they're extremely generous uh, in their time and like I say, so I learned so much. I was given plenty of opportunities while I was over there and, and it was the reason we started the business that we did. Um, there was a mate of mine in Canada and I that started the business and it was just a great... Um, you know, we used to say we'd make young people's dreams come true and that, you know, there's plenty of people that uh, we found jobs for in Canada who probably would never have gone had we not um, mentored them through that process of, you know, what they needed to do to get organised, go there and work. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it was a, you know, it was a little money spinning on the side for us. Um, it was never kind of a full-time income, but it was also an extremely satisfying little business that we had going.
1: Yeah, I bet. Can I ask so a question you've just meant to, uh, mentioned there around mentoring, and I suppose particularly for, for young people as they start to come through, and, and I suppose you can start to hit uncertain times after school, and I, I even reckon throughout your 20s, like, geez, I went through one only six months ago. I was in like, where the hell do I go? But what, when it came to, I suppose mentoring younger people what was it out of that that i suppose opened your eyes or what were the key learnings when it came to helping out people finding their feet
0: well mate it's probably one of the most satisfying things uh, that i do and um i say that i have two uh, goals in life one is to help people and the other is to make people laugh and um both of which give me enormous satisfaction probably more satisfaction than anything um and, you know, I just think there is so much opportunity for young people in agriculture and it is challenging trying to um, find your way and find your place and what you'd like to do. Um, but it's, it all comes down to attitude. And those who really want to have a crack and, you know, and have a red-hot co, um, I've got all the time in the world for and we'll, you know, and I, and I do what I can to try and help them find their path. And uh, as they always say, the... Um, Never, a, you never go from A to B in a straight line. It's always a very windy road, uh, and all those little bends in the road are, design, are are there to to teach you something, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, and you know, one of the on the contrary, one of the hard things I've had to come to terms with is that you can't help people that know not you helped, um, and that that can be quite frustrating. When um, you can see opportunities for people, or you can see how you know a person could better themselves, um, and but they don't they don't see that or don't want to um, don't have that desire and that can be a bit frustrating but I've kind of learned to let go in, in a lot of respects there that um, like I say, with all the time in the world for people who really want to charge ahead and have a crack and um, and I just you know come to terms with the fact that you can't not everyone is that way why um, but it, yeah, that's everyone's got their own prerogative, I suppose
1: yeah absolutely and it's it's an interesting one when it comes back to yeah, people, and I suppose in business too. Like, I, I, one thing I love about the podcast is it gives me a chance to ask questions of people, which I genuinely really want to know. And so, I suppose, like, as a manager of people within a business, it can't just be a perpetual door of people coming in and going as such. So, like, at, at times, have you had had to, I suppose, bite your tongue and pull yourself up uh, as such as a, I suppose as a people manager in that regard.
0: Probably every day, Ollie. If I'm honest, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we we are fortunate to have a great crew. Um, I do, you know, I care more about our people than, than anything, and um, and I and I mean that in that I care more about their life and where they want to, you know, and their journey and where they're trying to get to, um, more so than how they just how they do their job day to day, you know, as an employee of this business. Um, you know, I consider them all. Uh, very capable and talented people who, um, you know, have goals and aspirations in their lives, uh, and I want to do what I can to help them achieve that. Um, and and for as long as Wilmot Cattle Company is a part of that journey, we'll um, we'll we'll help them, uh, whether that's through you know new learning or new knowledge, um, or gaining new skills, or or just um, continuing to, to develop them in the position they're in um, we have two ops managers at the moment on two of our places and they're um, both kind of late 20s and they' you know they're really at that stage where they're um, operationally very skilled and talented uh, and quite capable and we're just developing them into kind of business managers as well um, which without having gone to college or or had any sort of a formal education it's a um, it is a hard process for them and us um, but it's something we're really committed to because we know and they know that they've got to be business managers as much as they are farm managers. Um, so yeah, that's you know, it's a really satisfying thing and uh we are lucky that we have a well, I don't know whether we're lucky, maybe we're, maybe it's a reflection on our um on our business that we have a, a quite a long term um staff. Uh, and there's it's only a small crew, we've only got um four full-time guys and a couple of casual guys uh, and girls. Um, but, those, you know, the four full-timers have, have all been here for a considerable amount of time now, and that's, that's also pretty satisfying and, and hopefully a good reflection on um, on the business.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I suppose it's always helpful having people in a business. And- hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I other the business. Oh, you were just touching there around, yeah, I suppose, mentoring those guys and, and helping them out. So what role did mentors have for you as you kind of, I suppose, developed through the ranks as a young and aspiring Um, future manager, and then I suppose as as a manager today, who who do you still lean on and and what role do mentors have for you?
0: Um, Yeah, a big one for sure, and I always have. Um, If I think back, my grandfather was probably my first mentor um, and was a very strong one. Uh, He was, you know, quite um, proud, I suppose, Uh, and plenty of people, you know, close to me will tell me that I have some very traditional values around um you know self discipline and self respect and so forth and and he really instilled that in me um which i i don't uh you know I value incredibly um and then when I left school everywhere i went um you know whether it was a boss, most of the time I suppose it was a boss and someone who was who showed a bit of faith in me and gave me a bit of opportunity um to grow my own skills and knowledge um, and, and put a bit of com- um, faith in me to, you know, through some leadership at me or whatever, or some responsibility. Um, and each time they sort of, they come and go, I suppose, through stages through your life. Uh, and and I still keep in contact with most of them. Um, there was Tom Archer was one when I first got to Wilmot. He was a fantastic mentor for sort of the first 18 months or so when I got down here, there was a lot of, you know, Adjustment to make having come from the Northern Territory to Ebor. Um, it's quite a environmental shift. Um, so he was a, he was a really uh, strong mentor for me and I'm very grateful for the, the time that Tom spent with me. Um, and interestingly at the moment, I'm, it's probably something that I'm lacking. Um, you know, I've got to a, a level, uh, in this business and, and in my career, I suppose, where I've kind of outgrown that, um, on-farm, you know, operational mentorship and I'm really looking for someone who can um, kind of challenge me every now and then, give me a bloody slap up the side of the head every now and then and tell me to pull my head in if, if I'm not, you know, if I'm getting off the off the path a bit, uh, but can also suggest, you know, here's, a, here's a, a great opportunity in terms of some more knowledge or some more skills or learning or whatever um, at that kind of next level of management, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's something I've identified probably in the last six months as lacking.
1: Yeah. So you're very self-aware, I suppose, in terms of, yeah, and honest with yourself too, where where you're at personally. Yeah,
0: and I'd probably um, I'd probably put that down to uh, course, I suppose, one of the better words that we've just finished the RCS executive link program which is a three year program. Um, It's kind of a board, a peer-to-peer board. So there was five businesses on our board. Uh, We meet three times a year, It's utterly open book. We're all looking at each other's uh, figures. Um, And it's all about, you basically act as a director of each other's businesses. Um, And it's an extremely powerful forum in that, you know, you have to sit back and, and be willing to take advice and opinions and, uh, and thoughts from others on on things that are you're finding challenging in your business at the time. Uh, and then you have the opportunity to do the same for four other businesses. Um, you learn an enormous amount. But one of the, the biggest intrinsic values out of that that you couldn't place a dollar value on is the personal growth that you get. Um, so there's a lot of you know through it. That's that's really what it gets down to um, is is you as a person, as a leader, as a manager, as a husband, as a partner, as a father—all those roles that we play, and how well we're playing them, and you know how well we've got everything kind of in balance. And so, so through that process, that's absolutely what you know what came out of it for me is how I can be a better person and what my strengths and weaknesses are in as a person and as a like I as a partner and a father, as a business manager, as a leader of people etc etc you know what are some of the things i need to work on so um it is you do become very self-aware i suppose and you really uh into the the tough stuff but um unless you make the time or someone pushes you to that point to to consider it and think about it you really you know you kind of cruise through life without um, without thinking you know without looking back i suppose or without thinking about it
1: yeah that's fascinating on that um i've got a Question around. I'm just gonna keep peppering you now. (laughs) This is what (laughs) you signed up for, Stuart. (laughs) Around, I suppose the opening your books up, and and I understand there must be a level of trust here with other people. But as an industry, like, and maybe I've got it wrong, but I feel like there's this perception that we sit within, like, what's mine, my information, how I run my business is secret information and confidential information to me, like. Was there a serious hurdle you guys had to overcome or was there, I suppose, a level of maturity and, yeah, I suppose that mutual respect but nearly that corporate view that this is just another business?
0: Yeah. Um, it comes down to two things, pride and ego. Uh, and, if, you know, if you look at the um, the state, uh yeah. With some really great mates from over there, and um, and we often, you know, we're we're terrible in this country for the tall poppy syndrome, uh, and we, you know, we look at the um, the states and say so those fellas that you know, the beat their drum all day, and um, and I look at them and having spent time over there now, and I just think they are very proud of what they do, um, but they're also extremely humble and uh, and very willing to, you know, if you offer a different perspective, they're very willing to listen and, and open to it. Um, whereas in Australia, you know, like I say, that tall poppy syndrome is study is terrible and it's, it cripples our industry times, at times where um, our pride gets in the way of our, of our ability to ask for help uh, and our ability to make a decision that's, you know, potentially a very tough decision to make, but one that needs to be made um, for fear of retribution from our peers, which is, you know, like I say, study crippling. Mm. Um, so, yes, uh, you know you know that when you sign up to this deal, you know that's what you're in for uh and and it's um it's kind of you open the shoulders, I suppose, and you've got to be willing to take criticism and um and it's understanding, i suppose or recognizing that it's all well intentioned you know no one goes into those forums to to prove that they're better than anyone else or. to shoot anyone else down it's all about lifting each other up and helping each other become um you know better people better business managers um stronger more resilient financially uh businesses um so it's very powerful and i think you know in some respects um we've got to get over ourselves a bit and and uh be willing to ask for help and and look at new ideas and new
1: perspectives and um
0: take input or feedback from our, our peers.
1: Yeah. And and that tall poppy syndrome, I think is something I'll, I really want to come back and address with you when we start to talk about, I suppose the, the spotlight that's come on to you personally, but also your business kind of more recently with, with what's happened. But I I suppose parking that there for a minute and I, I do want to, I suppose, yeah, just, just find out a bit more about, I suppose, Wilmot Cattle Company Um the type of cattle I suppose you guys run, but also how you manage everything from, yeah, how you manage your cattle to how you manage your pastures and, and the considerations, I suppose, that, that you've got there on each.
0: Yep. Uh, very broadly speaking, at a, a high-level overview, there's three farms. Uh, Wilmot's about 4,500 acres up at Ebor, where 1,200 mil rainfall, um, volcanic basalt soils, extremely fertile country, um, wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Uh, God's country. That Woodburn, is, is pretty much. I mean, I haven't, I've been a few places that claim that and I, I don't think anywhere takes the cake near as much as this place does. Yep. Uh, Woodburn is our property at Urala or between Urala and Wolka. um, to the east there. It's uh, more of a granite soil type, about 6,000 acres, um, primarily a breeding block. Uh, and then we just purchased a block called Morocco down at um Kelvin, just northeast of Gunada. Uh nearly four thousand acres down there with three centre pivots. Um and uh it's quite a mix of soil types. There's some really good black country down there, some red uh red loam, um and then some lighter soil type down there as well. Uh, bought it about two years ago. So Wilmot and Morocco are mostly trading enterprises. Um, so we turn over, between the three farms, we turn over sort of four to five thousand trade cattle a year. Uh, and Wilmot, Woodburn is our main breeding place. There's 700 cows there typically. Um, and we run a couple of hundred cows up here. So we're, between the two places, about a thousand breeding females. Um, and all run under the same principles of management, I suppose. Um, those being the grazing principles that, that come out of the RCS School of Management. Um, in a very basic sense, we're running uh, small numbers of large mobs moving pretty frequently across the landscape um, in, in a small area for a short period of time. Uh, is probably the most simplest way to describe what we do. So, um, right now, Wilmot, there's about two and a half thousand head on here and uh, three mobs, a steer mob, a heifer mob and a cow mob, um, and by the time we finish preg testing this week we'll have a cow and heifer mob all combined, so there'll only be two mobs. Um, Grant's only got two mobs down there at Woodburner, his, all his breeders and his heifers all together, and then a, just a trade cattle mob. Um, and Morocco actually has some sheep at the moment, uh, so there's a mob of sheep and a mob of um, trade cattle down there as well. So. We just keep it very simple um, animals moving like I say every day or every couple of days um, constantly being able to see how much feed we have available in front of ourselves and constantly making adjustments to our stocking rate relative to how much feed available we've got uh, and and using because we've got large numbers in small areas um, we're using that density that animal density and animal impact to create ecological shift in the landscape uh, so that you know we're keeping this balance between improving our ecology um maintaining good animal performance uh, maintaining good business profitability um and a healthy workforce uh who enjoy getting out of bed every day to come to work because they love what they do and they love where they work for um and and that they take ownership of of what they do um
1: and I've got a, a couple of questions, I suppose, on, on the back end of that. So when it comes to, I suppose, business profitability, profitability ecology, animal health, and I suppose welfare, is, there, is it, I suppose, symbiotic in terms of everything's equal? I don't even know if that's yeah. the right. Or, or are there priority areas which, uh, yeah, come in first? Uh, no,
0: they are all, all considered equal. I mean, RCS talk about a three-legged pot between ecology, livestock and um, uh, money. Um, And so, you know, if we make too much money at the detriment of our ecology, well, the pot will fall over. Um, Or, uh, you know, we've got too many animals and and making too much money, but we're overgrazing our country, then that's damaging to our ecology. Um, So it is all those things in balance. And I think uh, as an industry, often we get those things a long way out of balance um, in our quest to make too much money or produce too much of something um, at the detriment of our ecology or it can be the opposite where um, we get a bit too environmental and, and lose focus on profitability so um, yeah it is a that certainly a balance uh you know we this business is owned by um, a family from sydney and uh, so, effectively investors, and so I do get some rhetoric from time to time that we don't have to make money because we're owned by an investor, and um, and I don't know of any investors who have run businesses that don't make money. Yeah.
1: Um, so, if it doesn't work.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we are, this is very much a, a financially profitable business. Um, our production is, uh, I would say, at an industry benchmark or better, you know, better than the average. Um, and when we're, we're probably not quite top 20% yet. But I don't think we're far from it. Um, uh, and our ecology is, you know, we're, we're constantly assessing the health of that, um, of the whole ecosystem across different parameters. Um, but everything, you know, that we're looking at is suggesting that we're heading in the right direction.
1: And, I, and I'd love to know, I suppose, given you're all in New South Wales, up until the beginning of last year, which seems so long ago, but um, yeah quite a number of years in drought, particularly across New South Wales there, and then the devastating bushfires. Were you guys affected by them last year?
0: Yeah, so this farm was um, at Wilmot here. Uh, they told me it would never burn. You wouldn't have to worry about bushfires here, and I, you know, I couldn't believe them. The first year I got here, was a, you know, that had a tremendous wet winter, um, so it had a big spring, and it was so green and lush, and I thought, yeah, there's bloody no way this country would ever burn uh how wrong I was in September 2019 um right at the start of all those fires we were it came out of the guy Fawkes National park and burned half the place Jeez. um so we had and our basically our policy through through drought as it is through good times as well is to just constantly keep adjusting that stocking rate really to power carrying capacity at the time so um county capacity being the feed available you know for the next three weeks, three months, six months, 12 months, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when the fire came through here, I think we had 300 trade cattle on and about 150 cows and cows, which was very few animals for that time of year. Um, ordinarily we would have had probably close to 1500 trade cattle by that time. Um, but it was a function of uh, the season and how dry it was and how little amount of you know our grass had been run down and we didn't want to continue to chew it down anymore. Uh, At Woodburn, our breeding place, we had um, basically sold down an entire breeding herd there. We had, um, we hung on to about 120 first-calf heifers and 80 um, weaner heifers uh, that we kind of shandied out between the three farms. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was tough, but we we just preserved cash. That was our fundamental priority was to... um, not let our cows lose condition. So, you know, uh, as we were running our grass inventory down, we just kept selling cattle saying, well, we can't, we just don't have enough feed for those animals anymore. Um, Sold them when they're in good condition, Um, you know, reasonable money at the time. Um, But we, you know, we certainly weren't holding cattle to try and get them to 480 kilo feet weight or anything like that. We just, if we didn't have the feed, they went. Uh, We put that cash in the bank and we just trimmed all our overheads right back um, and, uh were as conservative as we could be, I suppose, through that period. Um, and it put us in an extremely powerful position when the drought broke. Uh, about, I reckon I bought our first lot of cattle here about the 25th of January last year, which was about two weeks after the first uh, or second serious rain event. Um, and I bought about three and a half thousand head in six weeks. Far right. um, ahead. <laughs> So the first little cattle I bought, I think for two dollars ninety, and we sold them three months later for four dollars twenty or something. Like it was unbelievable. We bought it. We started at the bottom, and by the time we we were full, the equity was at seven bucks or seven twenty or thereabouts. Um, but we were back in business, uh, and we continued to trade right through the year. Um, and you know, Morocco was a, um, and it's probably pretty important to note this was a real risk management. Um, play there because of the extreme seasonality here, where we have such uh, high rainfall through summer and we go such an abundance of feed. Um, our exposure to the market in the spring and the autumn was massive. We were, you know, we we're only on the buy side in the spring and we we're on the sell side in the autumn. Yep. So, whatever the market was, was doing, we we're at the mercy of it. Um, so, we determined a few years ago that we needed, we actually needed a country, uh, a farm in a more temperate climate um, through winter where that, you know its primary production cycle was through the winter time. So that as we're selling cattle out of this place in the autumn, we're buying cattle in the same market into that place. And then on the contrary, when we're selling cattle out of there in the spring, we're buying cattle into this farm um, in the spring here. So that we're operating on both sides of the market all the time. And in the last 12 months, um, that's absolutely come to fruition and it's extraordinary how much resilience it's built into the business where cattle have been very expensive to buy, um, but we're selling um, just as expensive cattle in the same market. So we're um, putting away that gross margin all the way through there on every animal that we trade. And, you know, I said in oh, it was probably October last year, I reckon I said, you know, that'll that will we 'cause we analyse the gross margin on every animal we sell and I said, look, I think that's, you know, we're probably peaking out our gross margin here now, and and it's probably going to start to peter out as we're selling deer or cattle that we, you know, that we bought later, uh, and it's actually got better, um, you know, because the feeder price keeps moving. Every time the price goes up and the restock is high, the feeder price is going up. So we're sending cattle out the door at a higher price and we're replacing them at a higher price, but the margins remaining the same or getting bigger.
1: And can I ask on the, I suppose, the, the, Businessy decisions. Obviously, this is a business decision when it comes to yeah, buy, sell. I suppose not play the market, but balance the market to mitigate business risk as well. Is that elements that have come from analysing different industries or different businesses outside of cattle grazing, or where where I suppose have, have those pieces come from?
0: Uh, the, the the buy sell or the sell buy concept all came from KLR, and we did the KLR school. Um, oh man, it must be six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I was there when I was a college. So in 2012. Um, and so that sell-by principle that uh, you're actually looking at um, the margin you make when you sell an animal and how much it costs you to replace it. That's the that's actually your true profit there. Um, not because and if you focus on that, that's something that you can control. Where if all you think about is how much you paid for that animal and how much you have got to sell it for. Um, you end up making, uh, poorer decisions because you're, you know, say we go back to the drought, you're sort of saying, well, I pay that much, I've got to, I've got to hold this animal, I've got to keep putting weight on him because, I've, because I'm not going to make any money on him. Instead of saying, if I sell this animal now, I'll put cash in the bank and, you know, the market's falling so I can actually replace it for a lot less if I was to replace it. Um, so that principle, it came, I mean, Bud Williams talked about it in the US, um, he kind of, down that principle, I suppose, in the livestock industry. industry. Uh, but if you look at most other industries, particularly the share market, um, that's what those folks do every day, is, is looking at what's overpriced and what's underpriced, and they sell the expensive one and they'll buy the underpriced one. Um, and they're just constantly focused on what's happening today. Um, oh, and where you know, it came about through risk management, looking at the business and saying, what are our biggest risks and, and where's our biggest exposure and what's costing us the most amount of money? uh and and that was what it came down to was the weather and the market and we can't do much about it but this you know we determined that, that was what we could do about it was if we could be operating on both sides of the market um every month uh then we'd we'd extract um continue to extract that margin in any market and i did some i was doing some sort of end of calendar year analysis in december last year and um looking at how many we were buying and selling each month um on average uh, and I, it was the first time I'd worked it out but through that period um, you know, by the time we'd kind of rebuilt the inventory and then we were trading business as usual I suppose from March through to about December uh, we had we were selling 407 head per month on average and we'd bought 408 head per month yeah, um, sure. which I it was, it was like a rock back in my chair and I took my glass off and I just thought bloody held that it was extraordinary and it was Everything we'd set out to achieve when we when we went and bought that place at Ganada. so um, it's all, it was all coming to fruition, which was bloody satisfying.
1: Yeah, I bet. And can I ask uh, before we jump into yeah the the next bit, I want to ask you about how how much of your time would be split beside between being in the office versus in the paddock as yeah a farm
0: manager um, now ninety five percent in the office. Yeah, wow. I'm either in the office or on the on the road. Um, we've got uh, like I say, we've got an operations manager here at Wilmot. Um who, Jimmy who's been here for five years, um, started as a station hand and we sort of we've developed him up into an overseer and an ops manager and, and you know, in the next twelve or eighteen months he'll be a manager of this farm. Um, Grant has been at Woodburn for ten years now, uh, about as long as we've had the place. And then Brent went to Morocco um, I suppose eighteen months ago. Uh not long after we bought the place, and, and so he's also an operations manager. Where um, you know we're developing some of those business management skills into him, but he becomes a manager down there. Um, so yes, as a GM, uh, I sit in front of the computer most of the day, or on the phone, or in the car between farms, you know, saying how things are going, where we're up to. Um, and I manage all our livestock marketing, buying and selling. We don't have an agent. Um, I don't use an agent. We do use some commission buyers. Um but I make all those decisions and and we direct sell um all our animals.
1: Yep. Yeah, wow. Busy, busy. Um Yeah. Yep. That's good. Now the the bit which I suppose you've probably become <laughs> most known for as such is this carbon deal which hit the headlines, I think it was January this year or, or thereabouts. This year's kind of flying, but um and, and it was a, a deal that you guys had been working on for close to a decade, I believe. Um, and, and so I suppose what I'd love to understand is essentially the deal, uh, I suppose the, the transaction was between your business and Microsoft, the one of the biggest corporations in the world, buying carbon credits. And, and I suppose I'd love to understand and nearly go back to the the early days of where where this idea was... Dream, drummed up from and I suppose what led to it and then yeah I think we can yeah jump into a few more details
0: yeah um, we never we never set out to uh, sell carbon or or be a carbon farmer um, we Bart Davidson uh, is the person who probably deserves the most credit here and his foresight um, in starting to collate a database of information around us all uh, health and that included um, soil organic carbon. So that started in 2012. Um, Bart started working with the business and managing this sort of soil health here and at Woodburn. So he started taking soil samples every year um, from the same sites uh, across each farm and at the same time um, So that was in 2012, and then about 2014, uh, Damien came here as the manager. Um, over from uh, the previous manager who had been a very conventional set stocked um, heavy fertiliser, uh, you know, fairly old school manager. Um, and, and Damien started to change things, and, and that was what the owners wanted um, someone who was going to really look at how we could improve the ecology of the landscape uh, and do things better. So Damien started combining mobs and, and moving cattle more frequently and extending the rest period and all those things we talked about earlier. Um, and that was uh, the, the benefit from that was reflected um, almost immediately in our soil test. Such that by 2016, when Trish and I got here, um, those first samples of the were about 2.5% all organic carbon um, in year one, and I think year two was 3.2%. And by year five, which has been about 2016, um, we were over 5% organic carbon. Uh, It came off a bit to about four and a half and 4.6. The last two years has been 4.7. And that's across nine sites. uh, Like I said, same sites at the same time of year, every year. So that was, you know, when you look at that on a chart or a graph or anything, you see that change. um, It was quite extraordinary. And we, when I got here, they had just started to baseline some farms around Australia um, under the ERF model. And in fact, Tom Archer, you know, he was quite involved with that and he, you know, he was recommending to us to to buddy get into this because there's pretty, uh, there's plenty of opportunity here and and, he'd seen the soil test results from here and was saying this is, this is, there's something in this. Um, But it's a process of um, evolution, I suppose, and we needed to empower everyone involved in the business to understand all the ins and outs of it. I think 2018 was when the uh, methodology was reviewed, and so that kind of put everything on ice. In terms of anyone who was trying to do a soil carbon project, kind of got pulled up because the government decided they changed the methodology and um, made it much more challenging to participate in. Uh, however, we we were also, you know, by that point, growing in enthusiasm to um, find a way to monetize this soil carbon gain uh, as a co-benefit of, our, of what we were doing in the beef production business. Um, and so Toby Grogan, uh, he had not long started in Impact Ag and we sort of tasked him with um, the job of finding a way for us to monetise this. And he looked under uh, every rock around the world trying to find um, a way for us to participate in the carbon market, a soil carbon market specifically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so about two years ago, we came across this Regen network who were a startup up organisation in the US. I actually saw them on Facebook one night uh, and they were talking about monetizing soil carbon using blockchain. And they just had some really interesting stuff on their website. They had a white paper on there that was really good, and, and I thought these fellows are um, pretty cluey. So we made contact with them. Um, I was actually speaking at a conference over there not long after that, and we uh, was in California, and, and we met up with them and had a bit of a chat, and then we shared our soil data with them. Uh, and that was the real kicker. Um, they then... Use some spatial imagery, some uh, Sentinel data, overlay that over our soil samples, and kind of use our soil samples to ground truth, what they are seeing on that on that spatial imagery, uh, and found quite a um, remarkable correlation between what we were sampling on the ground and what they were seeing on this on these images. Um, so from there, we, TAVI worked pretty closely with them in terms of developing a method and a um, uh, a model, I suppose, as to what it needed to look like, how rigorous it needed to be, uh, the boxes it needed to tick, um, to the point where they had calculated uh, exactly um, how many tons of CO2 we had sequestered as soil carbon uh, over the last three years, um, uh, minus emissions, and counted, I think, 25% for you know an error factor, um, and Created that carbon credit that they then took to the market. Um, So, as we knew, there was an enormous demand around the world for, um, and there still is, for carbon credits uh, of any form. Um, And Microsoft happened to have their tenders open at that point for for looking for carbon credits. I think they're looking for a million carbon credits a year um, and wanting to offset all their emissions from not only on a day-to-day basis, but right back to the day they started Microsoft in 1970-something. Wow. Um, So, uh, they looked at this credit. Their guys did a heap of due diligence on it. Um, You know, they looked at it scientifically. They looked at it every which way um, and then agreed to buy it. And um, it was all third-party audited. Um, And uh, yeah, um, money changed hands. And you know that was probably the kicker is that you know, and the thing that's really um you know stirred up such a conversation is that the you know the a significant sum of money yep. um and money talks and, and you know it was the one of our um motivations for doing this was to really start the conversation and um and you know encourage the world to get on with figuring out how we can measure monetize soil carbon um because we knew what we had been doing here and at Woodburn. Uh, and you know we're seeing more and more evidence from around the world from grazing management, the impact of grazing management on um, on soil carbon. Uh, so we wanted to try and find a way to monetize that and lo and behold, we did.
1: I'd love to know, what was it like the night where finally, um, yeah, the paperwork was signed and everything went through? Was it a big party, a sense of relief? What What was it like? <laughs>
0: Uh, probably the night that the press release went out, we were, you know, there was um, we uh, had to work very closely with the um, Microsoft uh, PR team, and you know they had very um, strict stipulations around what we could say and couldn't say and when we could say it. Mm. So I think it was like at seven o'clock on a Friday night uh, was when it was allowed to be released, um, and it went to obviously we had that all lined up and. Posted out to every major newspaper and, uh, and news outlet in the country, um, and then yeah, that weekend uh, it was absolutely extraordinary—the um, attention that it uh, garnered, I suppose, and, and the discussion and conversation that it created. Um, overwhelmingly positive response, um, and it was pretty bloody exciting. I mean, I'm, you know, I think i have still come to terms with what we've done. I didn't, I certainly didn't think it was. Uh, recognize that it was as big a deal as, as it's become uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, so, yeah, uh, it is pretty exciting. It's a, it's a great thing to have been involved in. Um, and, uh, and like I say, it's really just the start of a, a much bigger conversation around the world It's the you know, using science and technology and all the innovation in the world to, to make this happen because um, from a global warming and a climate change perspective and an emission reduction perspective and um you know greenhouse gas perspective, uh soil carbon is um, the single best outcome in that you actually take that CO two out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground and we can keep it there. Whereas most other models and methods are about avoiding emissions over here um to in order to be able to uh, offset them over there, sort of thing, and and it's not actually about taking CO2 out of the atmosphere; it's just reducing the amount that's going up there. Um, where we saw carbon, we're actually taking it out of the atmosphere and putting it in the ground. Um, so I think as a as a credit, it's got a, you know that much more integrity behind it um, than than most other credits.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think what what I find. Really, really interesting around this piece, and it's something I'd love to, I suppose, pick your brain. I find it freaking frustrating that, like, you guys started this work, or Bart started the work back in 2012, but then even as, as things started to progress, let's say 2016, 17, 18, as an industry in 2020, we there's been such negative uproar against, particularly cattle and, and the role that they play in emissions, which yeah they they are emitters, but in terms of like this is such an incredibly positive story, and it, it's been twelve years or ten years in the making it's just yeah I, does it frustrate you to think that I suppose you guys were getting on with the job inside the farm gate, but <laughs> that the industry weren't picking this up as a good news story and and actually starting to promote it proactively?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, it does a bit, Ollie. I suppose I've, um, I'm fairly conscious of where I expel my energy so I don't spend too much time worrying about um, or being frustrated by that. Uh, but, yes, um, you know, the, the important thing here to note is that, that soil carbon, uh, we, we consider soil carbon a co-benefit of our beef production system. So our guys get out of bed every day thinking about how they can grow more grass Uh, put on more kilos of beef, and make more money um, from beef production. Uh, The number one tool they use to do that is a um, very basic set of grazing management principles. And that's what they focus on every day, is how they can become the best grass managers in the country and convert that grass into kilos of beef. Um, And uh, so that's, that's how we've done it, I suppose. Uh, yes, it's a different um, management system uh, and that certainly created plenty of questions. I mean, I don't think we've actually mentioned the word regenerative yet, but that is effectively what we're doing is a, is a more regenerative um, system of management. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric and the opposition that has come around from that has been that if we're not regenerative we must be degenerative and I absolutely um, don't ever cast that aspersion on anyone. Um, the best Or what I consider as the definition of regenerative is what Gay Brown said probably five years ago where um, he said, you know, we need to acknowledge that uh, globally our soils have become extremely degraded um, and we have had a hand in that uh, as much as we'd like to think we haven't. Um, We do need to take some uh, ownership and accountability for that. So he said, you know, why, do we want, why are we talking about sustainable agriculture? Why do we want to sustain something that is degraded? Um, he said, I want to actually regenerate you know, my soils back to what they were 100 years ago. Um, and that, you know, to me, when I think about regenerative agriculture in that word, that's what I think of is, is yes, we have um, degraded our landscape and we need to restore uh, our, our overall ecology and, and it starts with our soil. Um, so that's, you know... Uh, that's what we've done, and that's what we do. And grazing management is the biggest part of that. Um, and uh, and and I suppose what you know, in terms of doing this deal and and monetising the soil carbon, was being able to demonstrate that um, if you commit to a change in grazing management uh, and go down this path, not only will you have a more um, ecologically and environmentally uh, resilient business. Um, that you know is, is more focused on those three pillars in terms of the landscape. Um, but there is also then this opportunity to monetise something else that you you know create that you will intrinsically create uh, being soil carbon. So um, you know that's kind of the incentive I suppose that, that we're trying to encourage producers to consider um, when they when you know when they're thinking about where their business is going in the next five and ten and twenty years uh, and how they will be more sustainable as a business um, and more resilient so um and you know you're right i mean the 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 data that we had um was our greatest asset, and it still is we have trish and I firmly believe that you can't manage what you don't measure um, and we collect data on everything we do in this business um and that, at the end of the day, that was our most, you know, our, our, our greatest asset, I suppose. Not only the soil data, but the grazing management data that we're capturing in my grazing, um, our livestock performance data that we're capturing in Tapian, um, all our ecological data from, from the biodiversity assessments that we've done here. Um, you know, all those things that we can categorically put our hand on our heart and say, this is where we're at, and this is what we've done, and good, bad, or otherwise. We know where we're at uh, and we make decisions off the back of that data. Um, And, you know, like you said, one of the best things that came out of this was when we calculated emissions versus um, sequestration. We're massively carbon positive. Um, You know, somewhere we're emitting somewhere around 2,000 tonnes and sequestering about 10,000 tonnes per annum. Uh, So, and and I'm sure we're not the only business that's doing it. I'm sure we're not the only farm in Australia that's doing that. we just seem to be the only one with the data to demonstrate that we are.
1: Yeah, and uh, so I'd love to, I suppose, that, that I've got a couple of questions. I know your time is very precious, but one is on that. So, like, when it comes to climate change, and we talked about the emissions and actually going, well, how do we, I suppose, reverse emissions and actually draw down and sequester more carbon than we're emitting, which is exactly what you guys are doing. Well, how excited do you get when you start to think about agriculture as an industry? And the role that it can play in this space for, I suppose, the betterment of society.
0: Oh mate, it's it's probably the thing that gets me out of bed every day. Um, I I don't think it's any secret that I enjoy um, helping people and sharing what we do, Uh, and and that's the fundamental reason why. I mean, you know, uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up in agriculture, and my kids are, you know, having that. I'm fortunate now in that they're growing up in a place like this, um, in an industry like this, and I'd love to think that they would like to be a part of this industry. Um, and, I, and through doing what we're doing, um, we can do this for another 100 years and another 1,000 years uh, and still be here, um, still doing what we're doing in a, you know, an ecologically sound manner um, with very little to no inputs, um, a very uh, low cost base um, you know, making a profit most years, um uh, and a and a landscape that's healthy and resilient and full of diversity and um and encourages um you know native wildlife and native species um and recognises that all those things have a role to play in our ecosystem. Uh and I suppose that's the thing is is that we look at these farms as an ecosystem, not as a a bunch of soil that we can um, try and extract as much money out of
1: yeah absolutely no, so it's yeah
0: mean, it's bloody it's exciting
1: yeah I'm excited and like just just seeing the pr- the progress that say you guys are making and there's soil Sequest who are, are doing work around microbes uh, and and seed coatings and um, all that like it is just such an exciting space where it's yeah the there's just so many elements to agriculture, which is so exciting, but so essential that we get right, but also that people, ha- I suppose, have a vested interest in because it is part of some really bloody big solutions.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, you know, critically, I don't want to, I've, I never try to create a divide or create a conflict in our industry in terms of who's right and who's wrong and, you know, who's doing what it, it you know, The message that I try to portray is that um, we're all doing pretty well, uh, but perhaps we could do something different and something better um, that might lead to better long-term outcomes and and more resilience for the future. Um, So, you know, and that that all comes down to people. Um, You know, we are the managers of of, of this landscape, uh, and it all comes down to us and the decisions that we make and how we choose to manage um, what we are stewarding. Uh, and you know there's more than one way to skin the cat um, so I think we all have it within us and it's all up to us to keep our eyes wide open and consist constantly look at you know alternative ways of doing things um, and, and of how we manage the landscape and and is it um, is it actually the best um, strategy or is there something that may be better
1: absolutely always asking those questions And so that leads me to my very last question, which I ask everyone who comes on, and it is around people. So I'm excited after what you are saying earlier about, um, yeah, I suppose, supporting uh, young people, whether they're in your business or outside. But this question specifically goes, I suppose, uh, in regard to school students and thinking of students saying year 10, uh, when it comes to those, I suppose, pretty formative years of what life looks like outside of school and where your passions lie and, and what career may present itself. What would be, I suppose, your message and advice to why school students today should be considering a career in agriculture?
0: You should have asked me that one uh, a week ago, so, Ellie, so I had time to think about it.
1: Um, <laughs> this is my favourite question. Uh, I
0: love it. Well, look, I, if I think back to then, um, and that was me, I mean, I was, uh, I grew up in a little block that we leased. Um, we, you know, it wasn't any kind of a farm business per se, uh, but I was in agriculture, and I feel and I like I was brought up in agriculture. Like I say, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who had a, his own um, beef cattle business, and uh, and that was his sole income. Um, and but it had been bloody tough, you know. My my folks and and uh, many of their peers had done it through some pretty tough years, and they all. Vividly remember the late 80s and interest rates and the wool crash and all those things. Um, So, you know, when I was picking subjects for grade 11 and 12, um, I was steered towards either vet science or engineering Uh, or um, flying, being a pilot. Um, So I actually did engineering subjects when I, you know, through grade 11 and 12, thinking that I would go to university and, you know, doing something like that. Um by the time it came out at the end of grade twelve I was couldn't I'd come back around to agriculture and that was what I wanted to do. Um so I actually got into rural science at UNE on an early entry scheme and then never turned up. Uh <laughs> too much too much fun up north. Um so uh yeah, I I I suppose I would not ever want to um portray on young people that like you say at that stage in grade ten thereabouts. That um, you know, there's no future in farming or agriculture is too bloody tough, or you'll never make any money or that sort of thing. I would never want to portray them on people, uh, on those young people, because there is. And you know, I have seen we're demonstrating in this business now, and and my motivations to go take the path that I've taken in terms of regenerative agriculture and holistic management um, is having seen so many other businesses over the last 20 years that have gone through the RCS School of Management uh, and family businesses that have um, executed succession very well, um, have really harmonious families. Uh, They've all got a beach house or a bloody off-farm investments. Going on holidays is never an issue. Um, They're financially very robust. Uh, You know, the the farms are really ecologically healthy. they've got it sorted. And I just, that you know, they were all my mentors as I was going through the, you know, the last 15 or 20 years of my career. Um, that they, they, contrary to the, to the you know, the, the folks who were always under a lot of stress and always financially pressured and, you know, always bloody dreading the next drought that was coming around the corner. Um, you know, always considering how they were going to handle it and manage their livestock through those times. They were the real tough stories that, um, you know, my parents and their peers had all been through, and, and that was what was discouraging me from being in agriculture. Uh, but having now seen, you know, what we do in, in action uh, in so many businesses, I can absolutely say that there is enormous um, opportunity in agriculture. Uh, it just might not be what you learn at university. Um, but I would like to think that by the time the kids who are in grade ten now, are coming through the, you know, the university system, that what we do is a um, a greater part of the curriculum
1: uh mm,
0: so, yeah absolutely a, it, a long-winded yeah. way to answer your question ollie but it, there is certainly opportunity in agriculture it's, it's just a matter of uh looking outside the square and um and again looking for those bends in the road and opportunities to to go sideways you know and, and learn something new rather than just getting trying to get from a to b in a straight line
1: No very very wise advice thank you very much Stuart. that's yeah, thank you so much for taking the time tonight uh, to, to have a chat. I'm just so fascinated by what you guys have done, and I think it's just so exciting where the industry's heading. heading. There is, yeah, these opportunities that weren't even, I suppose, really thought about 10, 15 years ago and, and seeing, I suppose, the development that you guys have made over the last five years, uh, even over the last, yeah, few months. Uh, it's incredible what you're doing and... Thank you very much for jumping on and sharing part of your story tonight.
0: No way, though. It's really uh, it was good fun. Thank you, mate. You asked some really great questions there, and I hope that um, what I've shared is a, is you know useful and of value to
1: your listeners. That's for sure. No, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people tuning in. So, good on you. Thanks, Perfect. thanks, mate. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I hope. You enjoyed that episode with Stuart. I think mean, there's a lot of golden nuggets and pieces of advice in there. What I really love was just the importance and, I suppose, the weight which he puts on building up a team so not only the business can succeed, but also you can be the best person, leader, and uh, create the best opportunities for those around you. You can find out more about Stuart and the team at Wilmot Cattle Company at www.wilmotcattleco.com.au. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, specialist in Agribusiness Valuations and Transactions. you can find out more via the link in the show notes or www.lawd.com.au. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I'll see you next week.